there's a stigma that you have to, to be a certain kind of person or be a certain way, or at least there was at my school in order to be fit to be a teacher. And I think we especially had like a very professional environment. Like it was, you know, business casual at our school. And like, you had to like be a certain way, dress a certain way, have a certain attitude. And once I had revealed to them that I had this condition in order to, to like, sort of like be open about it, their whole persona about me changed. And I didn't like looking back, I'm, I'm almost more hesitant and like, like sensitive to sharing it now because of this horrible experience that I've had. But when I had shared it with people in Teach for America, it was like, welcome, kumbaya, because Teach for America is a lot more liberal in that sense. And so when I shared it at school, I just found that it was sort of like, partic- like it was just like another thing to add to things that they were trying to change about me. And I really regretted having shared that. And it sort of like culminated in after I come out of the hospital for being treated for my condition because of everything that had happened throughout the year, they're like, you know what? Don't come back. Like today's your last day. I'm Victoria Wong, and welcome back to Hashtag Teacher Life, a podcast dedicated to empowering teachers to share their stories, speak up in their own communities, and break the silence about the hardships, the joys, and the truth about the reality of teacher life. It's been a while. It's been really busy. I've spent most of the summer traveling, processing this past year, and most importantly, just being able to prioritize the people that I love, my family, my friends, and also myself. The past few months have been incredibly healing for me. Being able to step back and detach from the sources of stress from the past few years has made a huge difference in my mental health. And I'm so grateful that I even had the privilege of taking time off of work. Not everyone gets that. But I'm back. Not in the classroom, but here on the podcast for season two. And I have some amazing teachers who have a lot to say about education. Just some sneak peeks. You'll get to hear about starting a side hustle as a teacher. What to do if you decide to leave the classroom. Thoughts on social emotional learning from a school psychologist. The life of a small town Montanan teacher and more. That voice you just heard was a teacher I had the privilege of interviewing this summer. She requested to be anonymous for this interview, but she shared so much honesty and insight about her thoughts on teaching Black students within a white administration, how her past experiences in predominantly white schools has shaped her teaching philosophy, and the discrimination she faced when opening up about having bipolar disorder. It's... It's not easy talking about race or mental health, and they're definitely not topics that come up often within school discussions or professional settings in general. It's backwards, though, right? (laughs) Because racial injustice and mental illness, they're issues that are ubiquitous within our everyday lives. And maybe there has been progress in having more open discussions about them, but it's not enough progress. If we want to make change, we can't take the easy route. We've got to talk about things that might make people feel uncomfortable 
And if these topics are uncomfortable, I challenge you to think about why they feel that way. Is it because of societal stigma? Is it because you're not really sure what terminology to use when having these discussions? Or is it because it's new? It's okay to feel uncomfortable. And I encourage you to sit in that discomfort and listen. I definitely felt pushed to question some of the practices that I had implemented within my classroom. And simply put, it's not a great feeling to know that I had been complicit in subjugating my students to discriminatory practices that do exist within our educational system. No one's perfect, and we shouldn't be expected to be perfect all the time. But as teachers and just general human beings, we can do better. And I hope this episode pushes you to just start questioning some of the practices that you're told to implement within your school. I can't thank our guest enough for having the courage to open about, open up about her experiences, share her thoughts, and join me in our mission to break the silence about the reality of teaching. Before we get started, just a quick heads up, there is talk of suicide within this episode. I'll let you know when it's coming up. Now on to the show. Hi, thank you so much for being on our show. Thank you for having me. So can we start off with an introduction? Who are you and what has your path been in education? I, um, I'm in education through Teach for America. I graduated college and I was sort of like, I want to make impact in society, but I don't know the best means of doing it. And so I went through like the recruitment process to Teach for America at my school. And then I took a year sort of teaching um, on my own at a community college teaching English and then I wanted to be more in control. I wanted to have a bigger impact. And so I applied to Teach for America, got in, and I was placed in a high need region. And I wasn't sure like how I was going to adjust to being a teacher with such high demand, but I ended up loving it like right off the bat. And I was placed in a charter school and went through pretty rigorous training um, through that school. And that was sort of my path to becoming a teacher. I don't really know much about Teach for America, but I know a lot of people who have done it. Can you explain a little bit of like the training process that they put you through for that? Yeah. So essentially, once you're selected for Teach for America, you go through a process called, well, you go through an orientation process and you have six weeks of training called Institute. And during Institute, you're sort of just thrown into the classroom where you get a group of students who are enrolled in, in summer school and they try and like place you in a, in a, w- with a placement that's like similar to where you're going to teach for the school year. But a lot of people like they're going to teach high school and they end up teaching h- kindergartners over the summer. But Institute is meant to be the training process where like you learn the language of being a teacher. You, you learn like how to give positive affirmation and you learn like curriculum um, tools and strategies. And then they sort of just throw you in the classroom after six weeks of that training. And so it's really tough. It's like the first introduction to that waking up at like 4 a.m., going to training sessions, and then you're actually teaching. And so they prepare us through their seminars. And then you just go into the classroom and you have to work to meet deadlines 
to make sure that like you're keeping up with Teach for America standards for understanding how to be in the classroom. But for the most part, you're just collaborating with people working to make sure that you and other people within TFA are like doing the best that you can to help students. And then you do weekly assessments. And in that six week period, that's essentially how you prepare to step into the classroom. Did you feel like those six weeks helped you? Um, not really, no. <laughs> not at all. I The biggest thing I got out of that six weeks was positive affirmation. Like a lot of us joked about that. We're like, yeah, like we, like we know how to praise kids and like make sure that they feel good about themselves, which I think is like so important in the classroom. And that was like one of my like teacher tricks or not teacher tricks, just like something that I felt was really valuable, always being able to praise kids. But as far as like the things that I needed to actually be a teacher, like it was not helpful yeah. at all. There are so many teachers that I've talked to who I've asked that question and they're just like, I was not prepared at all. <laughs> and so that always makes me wonder, like I didn't go through any sort of preparation program. I was like a partner teacher. So I got paired with a lead teacher and I learned just through like experience. Mm-hmm. Um, but I always wondered, like, what did you feel was missing from the training? I think understanding how to actually interpret curriculum to meet the the way that we we were required to teach. At the end of the day, Teach for America, it's all about teaching low-income students. And we were in an especially, I mean, I'm I'm in an especially high-need region. And so I think there's this missing link between like taking a a curriculum like Eureka, which is like really difficult math standards that are applied to students in much, you know, wealthier districts, and then just throwing it at at low income students. And so I think that that's the, there's that disconnect where the curriculum, like it's not, it's often not interpretable for the students that we're teaching. And there's no, like, there's no middle, middle person to tell you, well, this is how you teach it best to students who are two to three years behind. Mm-hmm. And I found that to be really troubling um, in my time teaching. Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of the impression that I, I think, like, decision makers in education have is that, like, if they create a curriculum that works and they give it to us, then we'll be all set. And I've kind of had this conversation with other teachers, too, that like you can get a whole box of curriculum materials and still not be able to teach a whole class of students. Like there's so much more that goes into it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you finished your first year with TFA now? So I I went through a process at my school where I had to take I, I left my school. I was asked to leave. Um, and so I, I left, um, TFA in April, but I went through an appeal process to rejoin Teach for America. And so I'm going to complete my second year starting at the end of July. Um, but it was sort of like a tumultuous process of leaving my school and I didn't quite finish the year, but I, my, um, my TFA coach, she advocated for me where in the original appeal process, they wanted me to after being asked to leave my school, they told me that I would have to teach another two years again to restart my TFA process. And um, I had agreed because I was just so passionate about finishing what I started. And then my coach sort of 
out of the blue this summer, she was like, hey, I actually advocated a lot for you and you can rejoin and just do your second year of Teach for America and you know, the rest is up to you. And so basically um, I'm gonna be finishing up TFA and I don't like, I'm not quite sure about my, my process after that, but um, yeah, it was a really tough end of the year and I didn't quite finish, but I am going back. Yeah. And so that was kind of how I found you. One of my good friends sent me a Facebook post that you had, uh, I guess, posted about your experience. Um, Could you tell me a little bit about what you said in the Facebook post and kind of what prompted it? Yeah. So um, I suffer with mental health issues and I have since my senior year of of college. And um, it's been a it's been a hard process trying to deal with it while also like being really high achieving. And so since I started working with my charter school, we were a founding school. So it was, you know, us and like everyone who started, we were a part of the process of making the school work, making it happen. And it was really demanding. I found that I would be working. I was at my school until 10 p.m. Um, Like my car was keyed, like all these things happened to me and it was just crazy how much I was working without people sort of in administration being accountable for the hours that I was working, which of course happens with teachers because you work so hard and you're not really thinking about, oh, it's a nine to five or I need to get 40 hours. You just do what it takes to teach and teach the best of your ability. And so I was sort of balancing my mental health issues with trying to be the best teacher that I could. And my results were amazing. And so I found that I was really just trying to make sure that I had those really good results, sort of at the detriment and like at the cost of my health. And it's happened to me before where I've been hospitalized because of mental health issues. And so it was, it was, this was my first full-time job and my employers were well aware of my mental health issues because I had let them know. And so I found that when I had to go to the hospital because of my, um, my issues, my employers, when I came out of the hospital, they told me that that would be my last day of employment. And so I was pretty shocked, um, because of how valuable that I thought I was to the school. And that's what I had been told. And because of just the contributions that I had made as a founding teacher and the responsibilities that I, that I had been given as a lead teacher in my first year and sort of having to train other teachers and help them. And I was just promptly asked to leave. I wasn't allowed to see students. Um, they told me to pack up my stuff, return their computer. And it was just really shocking um, because of the way that we had gone throughout the year where I thought I was like a really huge asset to them. And so I, I was prompted to share my story on Facebook because I think I like, you know, I had made or set a pretty strong reputation of speaking very highly about my school, like talking to other people and just being really passionate about the work that I was doing. And I knew that what had happened to me was not right and that other people could relate or at least, you know, say something, especially people in Teach for America. Like I was constantly behind on my duties for Teach for America because my school had said that they came first. And so when that happened to me, I was just, I was totally in shock. And so the first thing that came to mind was just how can like I let other people know that this is wrong. And in that moment of feeling super drained, I was like, other teachers need to know about this. Teach for America needs to know about this because like this isn't right. 
Yeah, that must have been really hard to hear that. Uh, what were some of like your emotions that came up when they told you you had to leave? I I was just shocked. Like in all, in all honesty, it was the kind of job where I was just so deep into it and I mean teaching is just it's really hard work and I was just I was so passionate that I was I was shocked and I was upset and I was I was hurt. I was really hurt. Um, we had come to, you know, sort of view each other as, I guess, you know, a, a sort of family, like the school was really small. It was run like a startup. And the way that I knew that some people who had left had been treated, I thought was, you know, not right. But I didn't think that it would happen to me where I would have to leave and sort of face the same things that I'd only like heard through the grapevine of like people who had left that year. And so I just was really hurt and upset and shocked. What was some of the response that you got to your Facebook post? A lot of people had reached out to me, like people within TFA, people from high school, uh, like within TFA, I was told, you know, immediately, like, don't worry, like you can have a job at my school. Like I will put in a word for you. I will call someone for you. Like, I know that you're a good teacher. Um, people were upset and shocked um, because my mental health condition, like an, another teacher of mine, like we share similar issues and she's had a really good response in her administration. And she was just like on fire, upset about it. Um, some people in, that I had grown up with who, you know, could speak to my abilities and my character, they um, were like, oh, well, I know this person in TFA National, like I'm going to reach out for you. Like, I'll do anything I can to help you. And then other people had just messaged me from college who were like, oh, like, I totally understand. Like, I worked in a toxic environment. It was horrible. And, like, I can just relate to your story so much where you have employers who sort of just don't care about your mental health and, and like, you as a person before you as an employee. Mm -hmm. How did it feel getting that kind of response from everyone? It, it felt good to be heard um, and to be validated because even though I loved the kids and I loved the work, a lot of, and this, I mean, it ties into things that we've spoken about before, but a lot of the, the things with my identity that I struggled with this year were because my employers like had made it difficult for me to feel comfortable just like in my own skin. And so there was often a discrepancy between having grown up Nigerian American and always like people just understanding who I was and being quirky and like it not being a problem to working in an environment where people had certain like understandings of what it meant to be African American and being put into a box that wasn't quite like who I was as a person, especially like coming out of college where that really shaped me. And so it felt validating for people who like could speak to my character, whether it was like people I did a club with, people I took classes with, people I had worked with or just like helped or come to know and being like, no, like you're not a bad person. You're a great teacher. You're a hard worker. And being able to like feel validated that uh, the person that I was being portrayed as at work was not who I was. Yeah. Did you ever kind of like in your own head start to internalize the way that you were being portrayed at work? Yeah, a lot. Um, 
it was just, it was crazy. Like I, I spent a lot of time just upset at myself thinking I wasn't good enough because I mean, as a founding school, we had a lot to prove. Um, I think we were one of the only charters that were approved that year. And there were, there was already a history in the city of charters sort of not performing as well as they needed to, especially in competition with the public school system. And so I, I just felt like I had to work harder and harder and harder. And I started internalizing the little mistakes that I would make because we were observed very often. My manager was coming from a school system that was very intense, uncommon schools in New York City. And so coming from their background and founding a school, they had really high expectations. And I was, I was made to be a lead teacher where with a co-teacher who was in graduate school and I was like sort of in charge of the classroom and it like, it was mind boggling. And I felt like, oh, like you are this black woman who graduated. Therefore you have to exude excellence. You're not allowed to make mistakes. You earn this degree to the point where there was, there was one meeting I had with her where she told, where my manager told me you get paid. So you have to do this job and do it and, you know, do it right. And it was just like, my worth was just, it was, it was like put down into my productivity and I felt like nothing except for my job. And it was just, it was a lot, it was a lot on me. And I felt awful all the time. I was depressed. Um, yeah, it was just, it wasn't good. And even though like my, my, um, like the kids, you know, the kids were doing well. Like I was, I had great data, like double the data that, a, you know, a level five school or a level five teacher would have, which was like unheard of in Memphis for first year teachers. And most of us were at that level. It was just like, it was so bad for my mental health. And it's crazy because you were succeeding, like you were kind of doing what they, I guess, identified as success in a way. And Mm -hmm. that still kind of contributed, contributed more, I guess, to your mental health, right? Like, can you talk a little bit more about like the intersection of mental health and teaching in your experience? Like, how did they kind of play with one another? Yeah. um, So for me, I think that teaching is interesting because you're trying to tell, or at least for me, like the school that I taught at was like 98% African-American. And so I'm looking at kids who look like me, who look like my brothers and my sisters. And I'm thinking about their mental, like their, think their capabilities, their, um, their health, their thoughts. They come to me and they tell me, so-and-so said this about me. So-and-so says, I'm not pretty. I'm not good enough. And every day I'm telling them, no, like you are good enough. You're awesome. You're amazing. And my administrators, they were like, we don't get it. How are you so good with kids? Like you just connect with them, like off the bat, like you're just, you know, like you have this thing about you where kids just feel comfortable with you. And I would always tell them, well, you know, I'm the oldest of five, of five siblings. Like that's where I get it from. But what I found was with me, like it was easy for to connect with mental health with my children because I would make them feel like I would try and make them feel as good as as good about themselves as, as I could. But when it came to administration, there was this disconnect 
maybe because, and this is, this is something that I just surmise, like there was no one black in administration. There was not a single black person in, the, in administration, but we were teaching a 98% or maybe 99% black school. And so for me, like positive affirmation would come in, in terms of my work, but there was often like a critique to it, which is normal in a workplace, but it just like, it became so nitpicky where I was often compared to other teachers who were white. And it just, it felt very black and white because the teachers, I mean, the fit, the other team, like I was on fourth grade, the fifth grade team was the other, was the other pair of teachers and, you know, their data was better. They did better. They were an awesome team, but it was hard to not think to myself, well, like, how is, how is their critique given? How is their, you know, how is their performance understood? Like there was a, there was a point at which when we were in tutoring season, preparing for um, standardized testing that um, our manager, like she would send out emails to everybody and the email detailed your performance for that day based on your observation. And so everyone in my workplace is getting an email about how I performed that day. And, you know, I had an off day. And so an, a blast is sent to everybody of all the things I did wrong in my teaching that day. And it was hard to like myself and my co-teacher for us to not like break down because we're, we're being compared to teachers who, you know, have done better than us throughout the year. And even though we're still doing good, we, you know, we have a couple off days and then everyone knows about it. Next thing you know, I'm put on these performance improvement plans and they were contingent upon me doing better than how I was doing um, according to like the things I was messing up on. Otherwise it was, they said that I would be let go. Wow. So wait, so they emailed the whole school and all the staff, your personal performance evaluation? They emailed emailed all the teachers who were teaching the relevant subjects, my performance evaluation on a given week with myself and my co-teacher. And so everyone at that point in the tutoring season or in in our tutoring time was aware that, oh, I did this thing wrong. I did this thing wrong. And they, and she asked other team members to comment on how we could improve our teaching. And it was very much black and white to me because the other teachers who perform better are two white teachers and myself and my co-teacher were two black teachers. And it, it was just hard for me to take out a lens that didn't have to do with race because the praise that was given to those teachers just historically throughout the year was always higher than my praise, no matter how well I performed. That makes me so angry <laughs> that they sent out your evaluation to like everyone else because that's just fostering like competition and shame. And I don't like there's absolutely no benefit that could have been taken from that. Is that no. like a common practice that they did at your school? Yeah. Yeah. And my manager, before she was a teacher, she was a consultant. So she did consulting and she sort of, you know, came from the business world of that competition. And um, I think a lot of that played into how we were evaluated and how we were taught her background in the business world. And I think that the competition between us as teachers was just really intense, especially between grade levels. 
when we would do our evaluations, we were asked to, you know, sort of critique each other. And we practiced all the time in preparation for teaching. And we would, I mean, feedback was their big thing. Even when we had orientation, my principal, he spoke at a Teach for America meeting that we had because he, he then made that broad announcement that he had interviewed most of us and only a few were chosen. I was among those few. And so from the get-go, they were setting a reputation of being competitive, having the competitive edge. And so that standard was comparing ourselves to Nashville. And so we, our goal for that year was to match the wealthiest um, county. So we were just trying to be the best of the best off the bat. And it wasn't like I wasn't trying to work towards those standards, but it came at the cost of not considering the factors that come into children walking into our classroom and our school being two years behind, three years behind, four years behind, and not knowing how to write or how to read in fourth grade. And I'm, I was, as a teacher, literally having kids grow two years of growth, and it still wasn't good enough. There's always this, my school was really data heavy too. Um, and we had these massive goals. And I also worked with low income communities. And there's always like this question of like, they portray everything that they do as being what's best for students, right? And then they have like a singular goal, which is to like, I guess in your case, like meet the same standards and results as like a higher, wealthier community. And there's always that question of like, is that really what's best for students? Like if everything that we do is working towards meeting this one metric, like are we really addressing all of the needs that our students have? Um, Mm -hmm. Did you ever feel that way? Like, or question that throughout the year? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. For me, um, it was just difficult, I guess, to swallow a lot of the time because what they wanted our kids to be was in in many ways where I came from. Like I, I grew up pretty privileged and I grew up in primarily white neighborhoods. I went to one of the best public schools. I went to one of the best public school systems, like in my state, I then moved on to go to an elite college, which was also primarily white. And a lot of those, a lot of the ways that I grew up traumatized me. And I think that I've done a lot of healing and joining, becoming a teacher was a way that I wanted to process a lot of like the ways in which I didn't get to have a normal like black experience because my parents wanted me to have the best. Like at at any cost, I had to go to the best schools. I had to go to the best college. I had to, you know, study for the SAT before I could go hang out with friends. And that was the most important thing because of like my Nigerian American background and like what was expected of me. And I have friends who went through similar processes who are black. And in a lot of ways, like the way we grew up has really traumatized us. And so I think there's something really beautiful and awesome about being in a city which is so like Afrocentric and primarily African-American because there's something inherent in the culture where black culture stands on its own and it's not it's not compared to whiteness. And that was something that like attracted me to the city. And I think something you lose in taking a bunch of outsiders and asking them to write a curriculum and lead a school that is black, but not having any black like 
like any black lens to interpret it is putting kids in proximity to whiteness and telling them this is what it means to be great. And if you're not, if you're not doing this, like the wealthiest county, which is also primarily white, then you're not striving toward greatness. And even when we, you know, we talked about schools and where kids want to end up, you know, it's, it's got to, like, I'm not saying that they didn't have any advocacy for historically black universities, but it's the, the way that we were structuring our learning and the way that we were like nurturing and fostering the kids, it was like toward a system that is, you know, Gather, like making sure that kids are, are, are going towards PWIs and thinking, well, if you're like this, you're going to be successful. And if you talk the way that you talk, where you, if, you know, if you say finna instead of going to, then you're going to end up being unsuccessful in life. Where I know graduating seniors from my school who are from, you know, they're from St. Louis, they're from Chicago, and they still, in the class discussions that we had, are embracing the way that they grew up and being successful, being speaking on class day and, you know, being Fulbright scholars and still being, being their whole form of blackness and not being told the way that you are is, is not acceptable. And so for me, like, I think the way that we taught was detrimental to the inherent blackness that you just have when you're black in America and being told that you need to change it to be to go on to the best college to me was just wrong. Yeah, I think there's definitely a lot of like subtle messaging and like microaggressions that we as schools and it as teachers do to students of color. Like at my school, we have uniforms and um, we had this long discussion with my staff because um, we had like social justice initiatives and we were talking about the middle school and how my school is very, very strict on uniform and how all kids had to tuck in their shirts and wear belts and dress a certain way. And essentially we were training them to dress like white people. Like that's mm -hmm. essentially what we were training them to do. Even my kindergartners wore little collared shirts, had to tuck in their shirts into their khakis. And I was like, that's not how they dress at home. That's how white people dress. And from day one in kindergarten, we are telling them that this is how you have to look to be successful in our world. Like what were, I guess, do you have any more examples of things that your administration was asking you to do? Yeah, definitely. I mean, similarly, we had the uniform. My, I guess, the one, the strongest example that I think I could give would be our, our discipline system. And so I think like a lot of charter schools, we have like a check system where you get a check for certain, um, certain examples of like being disrespectful. And so what I witnessed as far as the response to children who were taken to, who were suspended and taken to the, like the room where they were disciplined, a lot of the time was just, you know, kids being screamed at, like for, for only, like only God knows how long just being screamed at. And then we were, you know, like they gave us an orientation. They're like, oh, well, this is what typically happens where like in 
in the room where kids get disciplined, like they go through a system, they write down you like how they're feeling. But then if the principal would come in or another administrator would come in, it would be a whole different story where kids were just being yelled at, screamed at for a long, like a long period of time. And it was, it was disturbing. Um, and to actually add another example, there, like one thing that I think was just a major source of confusion for me was the way that we just, we dealt with special education students. And so there, there were a couple, I mean, more than a couple students who were just way more behind than others. And there was sort of an attitude where these kids are just not going to get the help that they needed because they were too far behind. And this was apparent to me in tutoring season when, where everyone else was sort of given like, you know, highly intense tutoring. And these children were not given like tutoring on how to write an essay because their skills were so far behind that it was just, it was a waste of our time to teach them how to write an essay. So the expectation was when they go into their state exam, they're not, they're just not going to write a, a legible essay. And our, our views towards special education were, I think, detrimental to gifted children um, because I, I grew up in Maryland where gifted education was, was really important. And the kids in my, in my view who were, the kids I taught who were at least getting close to gifted or the kids in fifth grade who were, who were gifted were not given education that matched their needs at all. And I think that was because we were starting a, a school and we didn't have all the resources, but like there was something racial to that in that kids who are deemed not good enough are left behind. And the kids who I think were, you know, way above where they, where they needed to be, were not given education that was at, at the level that, that they needed. And so for me, my question was always like, where's the money going? Like, what are we doing with this money? Like, I don't need a fancy computer because it's a new school. I would rather like have the kids like get the education that they need. And I don't want to blanket and say that everything is racial and that these people were racist because I don't believe that they were racist. But I think that there are racial things to how we teach um, and that there needs to be accountability with how education is administered with for kids with differing needs, even within the same grade level. And that was something that was really never addressed besides like groups of kids that we taught, which were low, medium, high. I think there just needs to be way more of an expansive curriculum for gifted children, for children who have disabilities like dyslexia or other, other conditions. And they were not treated fairly or well at all. They were yelled, the gifted child in fifth grade, he was yelled at a lot of the time. People couldn't approach him or reach him um, because he was just too troublesome. He didn't put in enough effort. But as someone who went through gifted education my whole entire life, I know what it means. I know what it, what you need to have a good teacher to deal with gifted children. And our, our special education teacher left because she didn't feel comfortable at the school. And then we had a replacement teacher but his his incoming was sort of as I left. So I don't know how that development changed, but I know that the special ed education teacher who left, she was very frustrated with how that um, that system was being treated at our school and not having enough resources. Can you explain a little bit more about like the connection you made between like race and differentiation? 
You mean as far as teaching? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, for me, I would say that like, I do think that our, our curriculum was pretty good as far as being diverse and like showing examples of different kinds of students. But I just felt that there's differentiation as far as treatment of like the way that the administration was trying to bring in a foreign curriculum. Like that to me was, was inherently different because even like charter schools that we compared ourselves to like KIPP and other well-performing schools, they use curriculums that sort of schools had come together and said, okay, this works for our kids. And so I think that when you are coming from out of the state and bringing in a curriculum that is, you know, pretty excellent and that works, you also just need to make sure that you're aware of how that's going to fit in with the needs of our children. And there were some books that like my kids loved, they gravitated toward it. They learned things about like French history and European history. And it wasn't like they couldn't handle it, they could. But I also think that when you are adapting that kind of curriculum, you have to be aware that some kids, they're not going to get it. Some kids are going to fall behind. And when I think, or when I say that race comes into that, I think that you have to make sure that you're addressing, you're addressing the kids that fall behind. You're addressing the kids with special needs. Like where, how do you, how do you tailor the curriculum to them and the injustice that's happened to them over over years and years of their education. Because to me, to say that, okay, you know, X student, like they don't get the New York curriculum that we're bringing, so they're gonna fall behind. They're not gonna pass the state assessment. They're not gonna write a good essay. We're just not gonna teach them how to write an essay. To say that, like, okay, this is the score you're getting and, you know, we're sort of going to leave you here, put you in the lowest group of tutoring with the least experienced teacher. And, you know, that's going to be your hurrah for the year. To me, that is inherently, like, that's inherently racial. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's very backwards. Like, I experienced a similar thing at my school where we had, like, middle of year evaluations and we went through all of our middle of year assessments and... I was told to, like, we had specific goals that we were supposed to reach, like X amount of um, kids should be in, like, should meet their college growth target, and then a certain amount of students should be in, like, the fourth quartile. And I was told and given a list of students who were doing okay in my class, like, who were above average, and I was told to push them and, like, focus on them for the rest of the year so that I could meet my fourth quartile goal. And the Mm -hmm. kids who were in, like, fourth percentile like 12th percentile not even mentioned at all I was like this mm-hmm. is so backwards like yeah. screw these goals I don't care like this is inherently like not what teachers do it is the complete opposite like we are supposed to be there for the students who are behind and right now it seems like a lot of the systems in place and like the metrics that we use to define success for teachers are obstructing like our ability to even teach and do what we're supposed to do mm-hmm. um what you mentioned is exactly what happened to me. Our, at a certain point in the year, they, we just we have to focus on the top 40% of students because they were going to give us the data we needed. And the students who were not performing well, it was sort of just like an oh well, like we'll do the best we can, but they're not going to help to you know boost our, our um, percentiles. So 
Yeah. Did any teachers try and like give feedback to the administration about this? Was that well received or was it more like you just don't talk about it? It was, it was more of a don't talk about it. I think a lot of us were just like, I mean, it was very like culty in a sense where we were just like, I mean, myself included, like we're just sort of like amazed at the results that we were having where I think just like keeping up that's, stamina to like be the best we could and you know I was involved in that I wanted to be the best we already were the best in our neighborhood just looking at our like you know mid-year data with four months to go in the school year we were like beating everybody else and so I think that you know sort of writing off of that like you feel really good about yourself and you're like okay I'm doing a good thing here like you know, okay, like some kids are going to get left behind. I'm trying my best. And maybe you're, th- you know, like maybe myself included, like we're thinking, well, it's frustrating teaching those students, you know, they're the bad ones. They're, you know, they're the ones like cussing and kicking and doing other stuff. And it's, it's hard to think like retrospectively, like what I should have done, but I know that I was upset about it. I know that I didn't like it. Um, but it was, it definitely wasn't a conversation in the school because like there was just an attitude and why I mentioned that it was culty. Like there was just an attitude where if you were a naysayer, if you had certain criticisms, well, you were against the school. And there was a point at which my, my feedback and my wanting to grow the school as a founder was seen as, you know, being just disorderly and disagreeing. Mm-hmm. And so that tie that tying into like them having this persona of me as being like a very like a person who just didn't fit the mold of what they expected me to be was just not enough motivation for me to want to speak up even though I didn't agree with things that were going on yeah and you you mentioned like kind of the stuff that happened with you know the evaluations what were some other things that made you feel like they wanted you to fit a certain mold well, I mean, I, I got literal feedback from them that at certain times I would be too quiet, that they wanted me to speak up more, um, just like comments on things like that regarding my personality. Like they're like, oh, you're so brilliant, but you don't like you don't contribute enough at meetings or you have a certain affect Um, when we have like staff discussions where we feel that you're being disrespectful and so I was just (laughs) I was um I was just constantly told to change my attitude like I needed to be more like participate like I needed to be like more participatory and more um to be a leader that they expected me to that I, that I was influential and that I needed to sort of like change in order to have the effect on other teachers that I, that I needed to, because I was influential and that I, they just like saw things in me and it was just very confusing to me because, um, being told to like to speak when I don't want to speak and being told that I need to change my personality. Like, I think I'm pretty outgoing but I also, if, you know, if I'm just think, I'm, I'm also a thinker, like took a lot of philosophy classes. I like to think, I like to process. And so it was just very strange being constantly like berated for what is like my natural personality and being told that 
you need to change who you are in order to fit the mold of the kind of teacher we need you to be. Wow. And also, it's so ironic that they were telling you that you were being disrespectful while they were treating you like this and telling you that you needed to change your personality. Right. Wow. Has, I mean, has anyone ever told you any of the feedback like that before, like before you went to that school? Never, never. So it came out of nowhere. (laughs) Like all my life with all the mentors I have worked with, professors I have worked with, teachers who have taught me, I have never experienced the kind of feedback that I received at that place of employment. Did you feel like it was in general, like something that they were saying to everyone, or did you kind of feel like it was targeted towards you? I felt that it was targeted towards me. Yeah. Um, Yeah, that must have been really hard. (laughs) So I'm going to backtrack a little bit to something we talked about a while ago about, um, I guess, like you talking about traumatic experiences during your childhood and going to all white schools. And I kind of connected with that a little bit because my parents sent me to a private school starting in fifth grade and I was the only Asian person there. Um, So I was just curious, like what, what did you mean by like experiencing trauma through that experience? Yeah. So, I mean, I don't want to like dramatize like how I grew up because I think, I think that I still like, I lived in a, in a predominantly diverse neighborhood. And even though I went to predominantly white schools, like from elementary school through high school, I still was surrounded by black people, but I think the cultural norm, like socioeconomically was more so in, in line with like white values or not, I guess you can't like, you can't put a a blanket on white values, but like white socioeconomic norms in society, which I do think historically, like there's, there's a trend there. And so as for me growing up, like it was hard to relate as sort of like a kid who liked indie things and just like was different for a black person. And so like my, my parents made an effort for us to experience like our own culture But as far as like being able to experience black culture, I think that was just more difficult for me, not necessarily as a result of like my neighborhood, but more so just like my upbringing. And so I think that I, I could relate to like sort of the confines that my kids are being put in as, you know, black people, because often in society, there's just like, if you're black, you're like this. And if you're not like this, then something's wrong with you. And growing up, I always felt like that because of the things that I liked and my interests and the books that I read. And so it was a bit traumatizing, like, you know, things like not being asked to prom and just like being in like weird situations, like my whole life, just because of like the kind of black kid that I was. And so college for me was like an escape, like, oh, if I go to this elite university, then I'll have you know, fellow Black people who are like me and who are strange and interesting and like the things that I like. And that was why, like, I wanted to go to the university. But I found that it was also a primarily white institution full of people who, you know, at the end of the day are going to follow a lot of those norms. And so I did, I found community, but I didn't quite find, like, the Black community that I was looking for. And so I think that there is this false narrative that for like black kids to escape and be better, that they need to have like a adja- like they need to be adjacent to whiteness or be like in proximity to whiteness to like be better. 
or have better circumstances. And I've just found that that's not true. And so even though I've lived in more diverse neighborhoods and been in situations where I've had more privilege, like where I am right now, where I'm, I, I learned the most, or I've learned the most from the kids that I've taught is more like of a life lesson and more of a growing season for me than the privilege that I've experienced growing up. And even though I think that that's my unique story and my upbringing, I think a lot of other people can probably relate um, where they feel most comfortable in places to them that feel like home, where there are more people like them and not necessarily more elitism. And so I think just, you know, from what I've seen, just like in, on my feeds of like people from like the South, other places where they, you know, they have, they have that strong Black culture and strong Black community, they're not necessarily thinking back on graduation and thinking like, oh man, I'm cleansed from my Blackness now. Like, like I'm so much better because I went to this elite university. In a lot of ways, we're like, dang, like that class sucked. Like, or I experienced this microaggression or such and such happened to me, but I made it. I got my degree from this PWI and like, you know, like by haters. Like, I think that's more the mentality. And so I just, it's just, it's so disheartening that we're telling kids, go to Harvard, go to, you know, go to Yale. It's going to be great. When like, you have to think about what that means. Cause you're leaving your home where, you know, your whole neighborhood's black and your whole, your whole culture is something totally different. And it's, it's hard to adjust. And even though for me, it wasn't hard to adjust. I still like, I, I feel all the pangs of like, growing up and like puberty and all these things that made life awkward and weird for me because I didn't have that community. And so going from, you know, that community to a really elite or top school doesn't necessarily change your whole life. And so I just think that there's, there's a nuance to like the type of education you receive and what's best for each person. Because I know, I also know people who grew up in white neighborhoods or, you know, diverse neighborhoods and then went to historically black colleges and that was great for them. And so it's just, it's really up to the person. And I just think that it can be like just a false narrative to say that this is what's best for you because you're black and you're smart. Yeah. How did you try and kind of push back against like that white standard being a teacher in your own classroom? For me, a lot of it was just in how I let my students express themselves and how I carried myself. Because I think that, I mean, like there was one day where one of my kids like made fun of me. She was like, Miss was always like, be kind, like be kind first. And I mean, it's true. Like I want them to be kind to each other and be nice to each other and to love each other. And I think that I brought that to them, like on their own terms, you know, like I was never the teacher that was like, oh, well, you know, you're speaking in a way that is natural to you. Well, you need to change the way that you are. Like I, I taught English, so I'm teaching them how to, you know, how to write and how to read and how in teaching them grammar. But at the end of the day, if you speak a different way with your parents or your family than you do in my classroom, that's not gonna bother me. And so I think that for me, like, sorry, can you repeat the question? I, I don't wanna like ramble too much. Oh yeah, I was just curious how like 
you kind of tried to push against like promoting these white standards in your classroom. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think letting kids be themselves, Mm -hmm. like be who you are, even if that means that, you know, at recess you're, you know, you are playing around and talking differently than you do in my English class. That's fine with me. And I'm still going to talk to you and, you know, understand you and get to know you and making sure that kids knew that it was okay to be who they were, like, regardless of even like whether they had the right shoes or like where they came from. Cause that was the thing too, just like kids getting, you know, made fun of or like not dressing a certain way or, you know, having certain things. And so just getting to know the kids and letting them be who they are. Yeah. And I think the, I taught like the little babies, so they weren't really socially aware yet, but I'm sure like around fourth grade, that's where a lot of that social awareness starts to come about. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to backtrack even more. (laughs) So part of my mission with this podcast is just to increase discussion about mental health. People Mm -hmm. in general don't talk about mental health enough. And like, especially in teaching, I think it's pretty common to have, I guess, administrations or work in schools where the culture is just to not really speak up um, and where there is a lot of stigma against mental health. So if you're comfortable, can you share a little bit more about like what your struggles have been with mental health? Yes. So um, for me, I um, I'm bipolar and I found out three years ago. Just a heads up, there's brief mention of suicide within the next minute or so of the episode. And so I have struggled like finding the right medications and like knowing things that trigger me to like have um, to like to not be okay. And so I, I really struggled with that as far as like knowing what I need in order to like perform at a job and like function in school because it's like all of this or my condition happened. It was triggered with the suicide of a really close friend my junior year of college. And so um, I had taken some time off of school. I took a a quarter off and I, you know, I just took time to understand what was going on, but I didn't fully process that like I had this condition until like a year and a half later because it was just really hard for me coming from my background, like coming from a Nigerian American background where my parents being immigrants are just like, not to like put immigrants in a box, but knowing my, my own culture, it's really hard to accept mental health. A lot of the times it's attributed to like you needing like an exorcism or like demons or things of that nature that are tied to religion that don't quite make sense. And so my, like my parents were really in denial and like really against like medication and like helping me to accept it for myself and to the point of telling me like you're not like you don't have that it's just a little bit of anxiety like you're fine when like time and time again when I would like have an episode it was like an indication that I was not fine and so it's been hard to come to terms with it on my own just because it's been hard for my family to accept it and like their approval like means a lot to me because I'm like a very obedient sort of like Nigerian American daughter. And so for me, like the, over the last three years, I've like developed a lot of things that help me. Like I know that if I don't get enough sleep, like I just, I can't function. 
and like I have to take my medications faithfully like at the same time and so that really intersected with my job at uh, teaching at the school because I would be working until nine or ten like times when I needed to be like taking taking my medication about to go to sleep I'm at school working no food and like it just it got to a point where I just I was not myself I, I literally was not like I just I wasn't okay and I'm in school and I'm just so tired and then I'm taking coffee which is like a stimulant and like not helping me at all when I like after I was diagnosed and I spent my first year out of college, like living with my parents, I drank no caffeine. I slept well. I worked part-time. And then I went from that environment to teach for America and my school. And it just, I, my body was like not having it at all. And it almost seemed like inevitable that I would have another sort of like manic episode and not be okay. And I think that every time I go through it, it's terrifying but teaching, going through it while being a teacher was especially terrifying because there's a stigma that you have to, to be a certain kind of person or be a certain way, or at least there was at my school in order to be fit to be a teacher. And I think we especially had like a very professional environment. Like it was, you know, business casual at our school. And like, you had to like be a certain way, dress a certain way, have a certain attitude. And once I had revealed to them that I had this condition in order to like, sort of like be open about it, their whole persona about me changed. And I didn't like looking back, I'm, I'm almost more hesitant and like, like sensitive to sharing it now because of this horrible experience that I've had. But when I had shared it with people in Teach for America, it was like, welcome, kumbaya, because Teach for America is a lot more liberal in that sense. And so when I shared it at school, I just found that it was sort of like the tick, like it was just like another thing to add to things that they were trying to change about me. And I really regretted having shared that. And it sort of like culminated in after I come out of the hospital for being treated for my condition because of everything that had happened throughout the year, they're like, you know what, don't come back. Like today's your last day. Yeah. So it's so frustrating because being able to even share something like that about yourself takes a lot of courage and it like already feels like such a big risk with all the stigma associated with mental illness. And to have that kind of reaction, like I completely understand why you're more hesitant to share it now. Yeah. Yeah. It just, um, I mean, my parents are always like, don't tell people, um, just live your life and things are going to be all right. And I like, it's, it's taken a lot in me to like, to tell people like, I've, you know, because of what happens to me when I'm like, not in my right mind, I've, I've lost friends, like, and that it hurts because there's just so much stigma around it where it's like, when you're not like, when you're not well, there are just things that you can't control by yourself, things that you can't control in what you say and what you do. And I think that bipolar disorder is especially stigmatized because like I was, you know, I'm walking to the grocery store and I hear someone on the phone and they're like, oh my gosh, this weather is so bipolar. And I'm like, no, like that's not what it is. It's like 90% of the time I'm okay. Like what happens to me when I'm in an episode is when I'm not okay. And that can be controlled if I take my medication faithfully, if I sleep well, and so I think it's one of those things that people just think of like, oh, it's like Jekyll and Hyde. Like you're just like, you're a switch. And it makes me hesitant to tell people because of the like 
preconceived notions that people have about people with it. Whereas as I've, you know, come to terms with my disorder, I've met more people who have it and like, they're the most fun, kind, loving, you know, caring people. And it's not the disorder that will make you a bad person. Like if you're a bad person, you're a bad person, but like, it's just, it's unfortunate. Yeah. Are there any other like common misconceptions about bipolar disorder that you've kind of run into? Um, I think the most common one is just like snapping for like out of nowhere and then just like being like fickle, I guess. Um, I think what's most true is just like needing to like have control over your environments, like have certain routines, like, but I think the, the ones that are just most frustrating and not true are the are ones that say that like you have no control over yourself or your emotions. Like if anything, when I am like, you know, like taking my medication and like faithfully getting rest, like I'm very, very chill person. Mm-hmm. And I wish, I, and it also my, in my personality, I'm just, I don't like go from zero to a hundred, like very easily. I'm just pretty. Yeah. You said that when you weren't like sleeping enough and you weren't taking your medication on time, you kind of like anticipated having another episode. Is it something that you're usually able to anticipate? At this point, I can tell when I'm not okay. And like, I, it was to the point where I was, I had told my school and this is what was just upsetting in the whole thing. I had told them like, I mean, I had reached a maximum of days that I could take off. Most of the days had been because of like a doctor's appointment or like not feeling well. And like, we also had very few days in a year. And so I had told them like a week before I said, Hey, like I'm not sleeping. I don't feel well. Like, I really think I need to take a couple days off. And they said, well, okay, like, you're not going to get paid. And, you know, like, we, we don't agree, but, you know, like, whatever. And so I was like, okay, well, they're telling me, like, all this, I got to come to school. So I come to school, and I'm just, I'm not okay. And then I come to school, and they asked me to leave. They're like, you need to leave, like, you, you shouldn't be here. But I had said to them prior, like, as I'm feeling that I'm not well, I said, I'm, I'm really not sleeping. I told them privately. I'm like, I just, I don't think I should be here. And they, they didn't care at all. Oh, it is so frustrating that you were like advocating for yourself and you were doing what you were supposed to, to take care of yourself. And you were met with so much stigma and like guilt tripping for not coming in. Like, yeah. That makes me, it makes me so angry when people are pressured to go into work when they know that they're not feeling well. And it happens all the time with teaching. Whereas yeah. like, I know I definitely have like needed a lot of mental health days too. Um, and like, I can kind of feel like I struggle with depression and I can kind of feel when I'm getting really depressed and when I need a day off. So if yeah. I take one day off and I do my own thing and I take care of myself, I will be fine for like the next few weeks. Yeah. But if you keep on pushing, like, you're going to need a whole week off in the future. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's it's really hard for some people to understand that. Like, there is a lot of benefit to just taking one day off. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That must have been really frustrating. I'm really sorry that you had that experience. Yeah, it was. But um, I think it's all for the better. Like, I don't, yeah, I just, I don't like dwell and I don't want to have regrets. So I think happen like everything happened for a reason and this is kind of random but this is something that I've been thinking about lately for myself personally but I think there is a lot of like shame and guilt 
associated with having a mental illness um, because of the way that it's portrayed within society. And I know that like your experience at your school has made you feel more hesitant to speak about mental illness and speak about your condition. Like, do you feel, do you still feel pride or do you feel like, what kind of emotions do you have surrounding like being bipolar? Um, it honestly, it's still hard for me to like embrace fully. I, I don't post when like those, those international days come around of like mental health awareness. I don't post anything. I mostly, I still have a lot of shame surrounding it. Um, I've just, I've been used to being like, I'm like, I'm a perfectionist and I'm used to being sort of like good at like most things that I do or, and it's just, it feels like this like crippling thing that makes me not good anymore. Like I'm like, I can't, you know, like perform to the best of my ability. And I'm, I'm actively, actively working to like beat that, that notion and that conception because I know that I'm not like any less smart or capable or productive because of it. Even while I recognize that it does inhibit certain things that I can do or inhibits, you know, like my, my energy and th things of that nature. I'm like, no, like I have to, you know, work out, get my energy back and, you know, sleep as much as I can, but also like wake up and have a job. And like, if a doctor has said that I can work and hold a job, then who am I to say that I can't just because of one bad experience. And I, at the end of the day, I still try to remember the people who all my life have known me and can speak to who I am and are proud of me and like professors in college who to this day will still support me. And so I do, it's still hard for me to embrace you know, totally fully. Um, but I now can say I'm bipolar. Whereas a year ago, I wouldn't say that to myself. I was just like, oh, this is like just, you know, something that they're saying that I just is not true. And so now I'm like, okay, yeah, I got it. Like, this is me. But I know people who have it and they're doing excellently. Um, so I think, yeah, like I'm, I'm fine. Like, I, I can be a productive member of society and also need some, some rest days. Like, yeah. Yeah. Uh, what are some things that you kind of noticed that told you that you weren't okay? I think the immediate thing for me is not being able to sleep. Um, I just sort of like, like I'll have all these like ideas and like racing thoughts and I just like, I, I can't sleep. And when I can't sleep or, or when I haven't slept, it's just like, it's just like game over for me. Like I just, I'm not able to function or be productive. Um, and this has been ever since I was diagnosed. And so it's hard for me because in the moment I will think that I'm making sense, but then afterwise or afterward, people will tell me like, oh no, you were like, you know, you were saying things or doing things that didn't make sense, but we were just trying to be there for you and protect you and help you. But really for me it's just like if I'm not sleeping I'm, I like I tell someone like hey I'm not okay like I need to like go see someone mm -hmm. and what are some things that maybe like friends or family could do or maybe have done in the past that have made you feel supported um I mean my roommate like honestly just like cheers to her like she I just have so much love and respect for her um and also like other friends in the past would help me with this, but 
the most important thing I think is just like, honestly, just like talking to me about things that are like more normal because when I am in a state of being manic, I will just speak rapidly about a bunch of things that come to my mind. And so like bringing me down and like talking to me about normal things and like talking to me like about like things that I know and like recognize or things about myself and just like, just literally just being there and taking care and like being with me and being present is super helpful. Like both my roommate and other friends who I had known for like only 10 months were like totally took care of me, like took me to the hospital, visited me in the hospital, brought me clothes. And it was like shocking because my parents like, like just never thought that like I would have that kind of support system when I moved. And so it was really like empowering for me and made me feel proud that I had like met good people um, because like they had also like a couple of them had experienced like being in contact with people who had mental illness or like have had someone in their family who had experienced mental illness and like that like that kind of knowledge and support was like really helpful. Yeah. And what have you kind of figured out you can do for yourself to help yourself when you're not feeling well? Um, I think, well, one thing for me is just like making sure that I'm not like not making my medication work. Like I, you know, I just, I have to abstain from any sort of alcohol. Like I just, it doesn't work for me. And I think like other people and their condition is different for them. But what works for me is being really regimented and strict in that sense. And that means that like, I have to get a lot of sleep. You know, I have to do things for my body that make me feel energized because naturally there's more like, I'm more like lethargic these days. And so I have to take care of myself. And that means like saying no to an event, like, sorry, got to go to sleep. And, um, you know, reading books that remind me that like life is good and like people tell good stories and remind me why I love English and why I teach it. And um, just making sure that I do things that make me happy and not thinking that I should limit myself to like anything just because of this condition because doctors have told me that I shouldn't. Mm-hmm. And so that, that means that I shouldn't limit myself at all. Awesome. And um, I have a few more questions for you. So yeah. what are you looking forward to entering into your second year of teaching now? I, I'm happy that I'm changing schools. I'm really excited. I'm, I like the team that I'm going to be working with. And um, I'm also happier to kind of be teaching younger kids. I think that might actually be a better fit for me. Um, sort of like before all these like, you know, sort of like societal preconceived notions of how to be and things like that. I think it'll be good to teach kids like like small little babies because I think that um, just like emotionally, that's often more like the wavelength I'm on or I'm just like chill and like kumbaya, happy, peaceful. And so um, I'm looking forward to that. I'm also looking forward to um, having a good support system in Teach for America and like the friends that I've made so far and like being in the city again, but like doing more things outside of the classroom. I think my whole life was centered around being a teacher and it was very unhealthy. Like I didn't really have hobbies outside of teaching and hanging out with teachers. Like one thing I'm really passionate about is Model UN 
And like, I know that like there are lots of like, or there is a like fledgling model UN thing happening. So I want to get involved in that. And I want to just be more involved in the community because that's always been important to me, like understanding my community. And so I want to make sure that I do that this year. Yeah. I love that you're going to start doing things outside of the classroom. I didn't do anything my first year of teaching. Like all I did was work and people would ask me like, oh, what do you like to do? And I was like, I don't. I don't know. <laughs> All I do is teach and sleep. <laughs> right. Yeah, but it makes a big difference. I think being able to like set those boundaries. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what is some advice that you have for teachers who might be struggling? I would say put yourself first. Um, you only have one life to live and you have to make the most of it. So I think it's important to recognize for yourself, like if you're not okay. One thing that I did a lot was journal. And like, if I look back on those journals, I wasn't okay. And I think that it's important to just be aware of yourself, um, aware of how you interact with children, because if you're not like, if you're not okay, you can't be okay for kids. And I had people tell me that constantly, 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 and I would ignore it. I'm like, oh, they're not working as hard as me, whatever. But it's just, it's so true. Like, if you are not at your best, you cannot be your best for children. Because what we're doing as teachers is life-changing. Um, like, I don't know how long I'm going to be in the classroom, but every day that you get there and you deliver your lesson, you are, you're implanting knowledge into a person's brain. And that knowledge oftentimes is permanent. And it's really important that you you try and do it the best to the best of your ability. And so it's just like, it's, it's a profession that like just means so much. And if you're, if you're not totally like in Zen with yourself, you, it's going to be hard to be the best teacher you can be. Yeah. That's great advice. Thank you. Um, one more question. I just thought of it. (laughs) TFA only lasts two years. So what are you thinking of doing after TFA? Are you thinking of continuing in the classroom or maybe moving in a different direction? My, I, I mean, it's hard to say right now. I do have like plans in place. Um, I don't think I'll be continuing in the classroom. I think that I'll be moving forward and going to law school. Um, if all goes well. Um, but I think that, I mean, that's what I wanted to do and, but I wanted to make sure that I, I sort of had the experience of going like Brian Stevenson says, get close, like get close to the issues that you want to face. And that was sort of like my whole motivation for joining Teacher America. Like I want to be a policy influencer someone who's close to societal issues. And I wanted to understand the issues that I studied for like 16 years before moving on to any professional sort of sector. And so I think that post TFA, like where I'm going to be is law school. Um, But the classroom for me was like the first step before. Yes. Snaps to that. I love that so much because there's so many people who are making all the big decisions who have never had any experience in a classroom have never been in a public school in their lives. So I love that you're doing that. (laughs) Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing and being so open Mm -hmm. and vulnerable. I really enjoyed talking to you. Yeah, same here.
And that's the end of the first episode of season two. You can support this podcast by liking us on social media, sharing with your friends, and most importantly, by having more of these open and honest conversations with teachers around you. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, you can go to teacherlifepod.com, click on the Be a Guest tab, and fill out the form. Season three is coming up, and I'd love to hear and share your stories as well. This episode of Hashtag Teacher Life was edited and produced by me, your host, Victoria Wong. Music is Waiting by Crowander. Thank you again for listening. I'm Victoria Wong, and remember, teachers, your voice is important, you deserve to be heard, and you are absolutely enough. See you next time.